0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, September 28th through Saturday, the 30th, feature Riccardo Muti directing an all-Italian-themed program. The program includes the world premiere of a CSO commission, Triumph of the Octagon, music by Philip Glass. The program also includes the Italian Symphony No. 4 by Mendelssohn, and after Mission from Italy, Aus Italien, by Richard Strauss. And here are Philip Usher's program notes on Philip Glass's The Triumph of the Octagon. When Riccardo Muti was a boy growing up in the southern Italian town of Molfetta, just north of Bari, on the shore of the Adriatic Sea, he and his family traveled by carriage one night to Castel del Monte, the celebrated 13th-century octagonal castle that stands on a rocky hill dominating the Apulian countryside. They arrived at dawn. Opening the curtains, Mooty recalled much later, I was surprised to find the castle built by Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II right before my eyes, like an enormous crown fallen from heaven, a striking sight I've never forgotten. Throughout his years as the Chicago Symphony's music director, a photo of the Castel Monte hung in Moody's studio in Orchestra Hall, a memento of his childhood and a reminder of the piece of land he now owns and loves to visit that sits nearby. When Philip Glass came to Chicago for the orchestra's first performance of his 11th Symphony under Moody's direction in February 2022, Glass noticed the photo hanging on the wall. He and Moody began to talk. And in a way that can only happen when two creative spirits are charmed to meet and get to know one another a bit, that brief encounter was the inspiration for this new piece that Glass has written for Moody and the Chicago Symphony. Glass first came to Chicago in 1952 at the age of 15 to begin an unusual University of Chicago program that allowed students to skip their last two years of high school and begin a university education. He quickly found his way to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra just as it was beginning to work with its new music director, Fritz Reiner, and was playing at the peak of its powers. On Friday afternoons, Glass hopped the Illinois Central train from Hyde Park to Orchestra Hall to buy a cheap student ticket to the Chicago Symphony's matinee programs. Last year, sitting in a box this time, for the first time Glass heard the orchestra that he admired 70 years earlier in Bartok and Stravinsky play his own music. The Triumph of the Octagon is the first work he's written with the Chicago Symphony in mind. Glass's title, The Triumph of the Octagon, refers to the castle's famous eight-sided floor plan with eight octagonal towers at each of the eight points, a layout of exceptional precision and rarity in the 13th century. In 1996, Castel de Monte, Castle of the Mountain, was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site as a unique piece of medieval architecture. It's also the basis for the castle in Umberto Eco's novel The Name of the Rose, and it appears on the Italian-issued one euro-cent coin. Now, with Glass's new score, the Castel del Monte joins the very slight list of architectural landmarks that have inspired music, a structure built of sustained chords and rolling arpeggios rather than blocks of limestone. And here is Philip Glass himself on The Triumph of the Octagon. In February 2022, I traveled to Chicago for performances of my Symphony Number no. 11. It was a thrill to hear this great orchestra and conductor in the hall where I would visit as a student in the early 1950s. After those performances, we began conversations about writing a new piece specifically for this orchestra with the initial idea to create an Adagio for Muti. The final title of the work came from a suggestion from Maestro Riccardo Muti about Castel da Monte, a 13th-century castle in southeastern Italy. The mystery of this ancient place and the uniqueness of its geometric proportions, specifically its eight octagonal towers, was an interesting catalyst. While I have written music about people, places, events, and cultures, I cannot ever recall composing a piece about a building. What became clear was that I was not writing a piece about Castel del Monte per se, but rather about one's imagination when we consider such a place. I dedicate this work to Maestro Muti in honor of his many successes as conductor of the CSO and important contributions to the world of music. Words by Philip Glass and program notes by Philip Husher on Glass's The Triumph of the Octagon. And now, on to Felix Mendelssohn's Italian symphony, the Symphony No. 4. We owe this music to Goethe. At his recommendation, Mendelssohn went to Italy, and there, struck by the landscape and a brilliance of sunlight and the disposition of the people previously unknown to him, he began his A-major symphony, a product of the northern mind intoxicated by the Mediterranean spirit. It's the same journey, though with a different itinerary, that gave us Goethe's own Faust, Berlioz's, Harold in Italy, and E.M. Forster's A Room with a View. The true Italy, says Forster's Miss Bartlett, discarding Baedeker, is only to be found by patient observation. Mendelssohn's grand tour, lasting two years and undertaken with no guide other than Goethe's comments, allowed him, like Foster's characters, to see the whole of life in a new perspective. When Mendelssohn wrote home to his sister Fanny, he noted with obvious surprise that his new A major symphony was the most cheerful piece I have yet composed. But first, back to Goethe. In 1821, when they met, Goethe and Mendelssohn made an unlikely pair. The great poet was 72 and famous, the composer a precocious 12-year-old. Nonetheless, they found mutual interests and formed a lasting friendship. Mendelssohn continued to visit Goethe in Weimar throughout the 1820s as his fame grew nearly equal to his friends. The result of his astonishing early success, he wrote the lovely Octet at 16 and his masterpiece, The Overture to a Midsummer Night's Dream, at 17. Still, like all the composers of his generation, Mendelssohn failed to win the poet's appreciation. In the end, and despite a number of qualified applicants, including Berlioz, Beethoven, and Mendelssohn himself, Goethe admitted that Mozart was the only one who could have set Faust to music. More than once, Mendelssohn tried to convert Goethe to Beethoven's cause without success. Music, it appeared, was not their common ground. Mendelssohn stopped off to visit his colleague in May 1830, just before he began his Italian journey. He played the piano for Goethe every day, sometimes choosing his own music or works by Bach and Weber. He even tried, with utter failure, to interest the 80-year-old master in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. They parted, not knowing it was the last time they would see each other. After stopping briefly in Munich, Salzburg, Linz, and Vienna, Mendelssohn landed in Venice on October 9th. For months, he wandered the Italian countryside lingering in Florence and Rome. There, he met Berlioz for the first time, finding more to like in the man than in his music. Berlioz, knowing this, still wrote glowingly of Mendelssohn, he has an enormous talent, extraordinary, prodigious, superb, and I can't be suspected of comradely partiality in speaking like this, since he has frankly told me that he understood nothing of my music. In the meantime, music was beginning to take shape. On December 20th, Mendelssohn wrote home, After the new year, I intend to resume instrumental music and to write several things for the piano and probably a symphony of some kind, for two have been haunting my brain. By February, he reported to Fanny that the Italian symphony makes rapid progress. The other, the Scottish symphony, went less well, perhaps because it was so far from home. Mendelssohn stayed in Rome through Easter in order to hear the music at St. Peter's and then left for Naples, where he expected to write the only remaining movement, the Adagio. If I continue in my present mood, he wrote shortly after arriving, I shall finish my Italian symphony in Italy. When Mendelssohn returned home, however, the A major symphony was not done. Even after the score was completed in Chile, Berlin, on March 13, 1833, Mendelssohn wasn't satisfied. In May, he conducted the Italian Symphony in London, but afterwards, he put it back on the shelf like a disappointing souvenir of his great journey. From time to time, he would take it down and tinker with it, but he never thought highly enough of the music to send it to his publisher. After Mendelssohn's premature death in 1847, a number of his scores, including the Italian symphony, were finally published, widely performed, and welcomed into the repertory. It's hard to imagine what Mendelssohn found to fault in this nearly perfect symphony. Perhaps, as Donald Tovey suggests, an instinct deeper than his conscious self-criticism may have prevented him from altering it. The opening is one of but a handful in all music that is instantly recognizable simply by its sonority. Rapid-fire repeated wind chords set in motion by one great pizzicato plucking of the strings even before Mendelssohn's famous bustling melody gets going. The melody itself is one of the composers' most natural and unforced, racing unstopped over the hills and valleys of the movement, slowing only to make way for a lovely clarinet solo. Mendelssohn waited until he got to Naples to write the Adagio, a movement of particular grace and nobility. The composer and pianist Ignaz Moseles said Mendelssohn took his theme from Czech pilgrims, Donald Tovey heard a religious procession passing through Naples. Mendelssohn himself didn't comment, no doubt assuming that music of such obvious beauty didn't require a setting. The third movement, really more minuet than scherzo, is colored with the composer's characteristic light touch, though the somber trio in particular proves that one can still say serious things lightly. Mendelssohn called his finale a saltarello, the fast and jumpy Italian folk dance. Some claim it's more like the tarantella, once prescribed as a cure for the bite of the tarantula. Unlike either and going against the grain of virtually all symphonic finales known to Mendelssohn, this dance begins in the minor mode and stays there to the last chord. Despite its bitter cast, it makes a brilliant and decisive ending. Program notes by Philip Usher on Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 4, the Italian Symphony. And now, on to music by Richard Strauss, aus Italien, from Italy. I will never be converted to Italian music, Richard Strauss wrote to his father, Munich's most celebrated horn player, during his first trip to Italy in the summer of 1886. But... Aus Italien, the large-scale symphonic work he began sketching as soon as he arrived, is in fact a love poem to Italy in all its splendor, its ancient ruins, the bucolic countryside, the glory of its paintings and sculpture, and yes, its music. Strauss's conversion began mid-journey when he heard Verdi's Requiem, then just a dozen years old, and found it pretty and original. When he conducted Verdi's Un Ballo e Mascara in Munich immediately after he returned home to start a new job at the court opera, he admitted he had been wrong about Italian music all along. Strauss had long wanted to visit Italy, but it was Johannes Brahms who finally urged him to go, saying it would do him more good than he could imagine. Music's elder statesman and a man of great influence on Strauss, both musically and personally at this point, Brahms had made his first trip to Italy a decade earlier and had fallen completely under its spell. One travels through the whole of Italy as though it were a most beautiful garden, he wrote to Clara Schumann, and to my mind it often rises to the heights of a paradise. Although Strauss lost his suitcase in Naples and his laundry in Rome and grouse that shopkeepers overcharged him everywhere he too was clearly intoxicated by the land the people and the culture like berlioz and mendelssohn who both made life-altering trips to italy in the 1830s strauss began to sketch musical ideas almost as soon as he arrived aus italian the work he ultimately fashioned from his musical snapshots is along with berlioz's harold in italy and mendelssohn's italian symphony one of the great musical travelogues and like berlioz and mendelssohn strauss packed his sketches, and returned home before he set to work, transforming them into a finished piece of music. By Strauss's own yardstick, Ausitalien was his earliest significant work. This is the first work of mine to have met with opposition from the mob, so it must be of some importance, he wrote after the premiere in Munich on March 2, 1887, less than a month after the premiere of Verdi's *Otello* in Milan. He said that he was immensely proud of the controversy it stirred. Some people applauded lustily, others hissed loudly, but finally, The applause won the day. He still clearly took pleasure in calling the piece a symphonic fantasy embellished by local opposition when he asked the eminent conductor Hans von Bülow if he could dedicate the score to him. Strauss himself described Ausitalien as the connecting link, between the old and the new methods of composition. It is, in other words, the transition between those early orchestral pieces of his that we rarely hear today, the first horn concerto, a burlesque for piano and orchestra, the F minor symphony, and the landmark tone poems that immediately followed, beginning with Don Juan and Death and Transfiguration, that would make him almost unimaginably famous. Strauss himself called Aus Italien a symphonic fantasy, suggesting its hybrid status between a four-movement symphony with pictorial qualities, a descendant of Mendelssohn's Italian symphony of a half-century earlier, and the rich programmatic works by Liszt. Composed just one year after Brahms' Fourth Symphony, Strauss's new score opens the window wide on a different kind of orchestral landscape altogether. There is no escaping a new influence on Strauss as well. On his way home from Italy, Strauss stopped over in Bayreuth to hear Wagner's Tristan and Isolde and Parsifal. Funded entirely by his wealthy father and his even wealthier uncle, Georg Schorr, the Shore Brewery fuels Munich's Oktoberfest to this day, Strauss's Italian journey took him to Verona, Bologna, Rome, Naples, Sorrento, Salerno, Capri, and Florence. In Bologna, Raphael's celebrated painting of Saint Cecilia, the patron saint of music, moved Strauss to tears. Just six years earlier, the English poet Percy Shelley wrote after viewing the painting that St. Cecilia seems wrapped in such inspiration as produced her image in the painter's mind. She is listening to the music of heaven. Strauss himself began to hear snatches of music as he traveled, and he not only began writing them down, obviously already knowing that a big orchestral piece would be his most important souvenir of the trip but he made notes of tonalities that corresponded to each of the sites he visited. He later told Fambulo that he had never really believed in inspiration through the beauty of nature, but in the Roman ruins I learned better, for ideas just came flying to me. All the characteristics of the soon-to-be-famous Strauss are already present in Aus Italien, except perhaps for... Economy, and that would never become Strauss's strong suit. On page after page of Aus Italien, we find the bold orchestral swagger of Don Juan or the broad lyric outpouring of death and transfiguration, the brilliantly descriptive writing of Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks, works that were all written within the next decade. Strauss still owes a great deal to Brahms orchestral music, but as he pointed out, with Aus Italien, he was taking a first step, toward independence as a tone poet. Ausatelien was the only work for which Strauss published a specific program, later learning to trust that the music could speak for itself. The first movement, marked Andante and titled In the Country, suggests the magical effects of the Roman countryside bathed in sunlight as seen from the Villa d'Este at Tivoli. This expansive and atmospheric music, which Strauss called a prelude, comes the closest to the model of the symphonic poem by Liszt, another influential composer who found musical inspiration in his Italian travels. The second movement, inspired by standing amid the Roman ruins, conveys fantastic images of vanished glory, feelings of melancholy and grief amid the brilliant sunshine of the present. Strauss said it resembled a great symphonic first movement, and the shadow of Brahms lingers over much of this music, even though Strauss, finally finding his own voice, knew that Brahms was the past. On the shores of Sorrento, Strauss's third movement, is his first effort at serious music pictorialism, the rustling of the wind, bird song, the distant murmur of the sea. And with these few exquisitely scored pages, he suggests that this will prove to be one of his greatest talents. The finale is based on a well-known Neapolitan folk song, and at the end, a tarantella, which the composer heard in Sorrento. The first tune, so ubiquitous and natural sounding that Strauss mistook it for folk song, is in fact the ever popular Funiculi Funicula, composed by Luigi Danza in 1880 to celebrate the new funicular on Mount Vesuvius, which put on a spectacular show the day Strauss visited. The entire movement, a hilarious jumble of themes, as Strauss admitted, is colored by fireworks of its own and was meant to depict the colorful bustle of Naples. The Tarantella eventually sweeps the finale to its conclusion, though not without a fond glance back at the glorious Italian countryside. Although As is regularly overlooked today, it was this work, that announced Strauss as a leading musical revolutionary of the day and introduced him to many concertgoers. Aus Italien was his first orchestral piece performed in England, for example. Theodore Thomas, who had given the US premiere of Strauss's F minor symphony in New York in 1884, at a time when Strauss's music was almost completely unknown in America, wrote to Strauss to ask if he could introduce Aus Italien to this country. That performance with Thomas's own orchestra took place in Philadelphia on March 8, 1888, just a year after the Munich premiere. Once Thomas came to Chicago three years later to launch the Chicago Orchestra, he began to champion Strauss's music here. He programmed Aus Italien during the orchestra's ninth season and then played it just twice more in 1905 and 1908 before it disappeared from the orchestra's repertoire, while Don Juan, for example, continued to be performed here nearly every season up through the 1950s. The third movement of Aus Italien on the shores of Sorrento was a favorite of the stock era and often appeared on evenings of lighter music. When Ricardo Muti conducted Aus Italien at the Ravinia Festival in 1973, the orchestra had not played the complete score in 65 years. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Richard Strauss's Aus Italien. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.